1: I'm going to read tonight from Mark chapter 7. Aren't you glad I didn't say 2 Samuel? (laughs) That was a long six months, or however long that was. (laughs) We're starting a new worship series tonight. It's going to go for five weeks. This is number one of five. The series is called What the World Needs Now. And starting with me today, but then over the next four Sundays of September, we're going to have four amazing guest preachers. I'll be here, but not, you know, here in this pulpit such as it is. And each of those preachers is going to choose their own way to complete that thought. What the world needs now is dot, dot, dot. And we'll sort of wait to hear what topic and theme um, they're going to announce each night. So, From Mark chapter seven, for me, I am a cheater. I just went with the lectionary and this is where the whole church around the world is reading uh, for this Sunday. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is without washing them. And here follows in the text a little explanation for that tradition. It's a strong clue to us that the original readers of Mark's gospel were Gentiles, that they were not the religious kin of Jesus. So here is Mark explaining to his readers. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash that. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles, etc. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them... Isaiah prophesied rightly about you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that if anyone tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is Korban, that is an offering to God then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or a mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on. And you do many things like this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. First, let me make my confession, my honoring of my parents has waxed and waned over the years, riding a sine wave of my own psychosocial development and mental health. In certain seasons of my life, I have found my parents to be generous, grace-filled guides who raised me well, and long into my adulthood have made sacrifices to keep my best interests in mind. In other seasons, I have been frustrated with their lack of understanding of how I think the world actually works, their failure to grasp how different our experiences of the same God seem to me, and the multiple times my siblings and I have reminded them to swipe through the Instagram posts that include multiple photos. How hard is that? Let me also confess that I've often not been particularly helpful to some of you who have parents and are struggling with how to honor them. It seems to me that it is sometimes necessary to release oneself from the obligation to honor someone who is not honorable or who is at least behaving dishonorably. I may have told you that at some point, and I don't regret it. For the most part. But this conversation between Jesus and the VRPs, the very religious persons in Mark 7, always returns me to a position of truth-telling about my own adherence to the fifth commandment of the Big Ten. Honor your father and your mother, we would say, your parents so that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That's Jesus quoting Exodus twenty twelve. Reading that sentence in literal mode, God seems to be laying down a condition for the long lives of God's people. Honor your parents so that you'll live long and prosper. Or honor your parents, the reward for which is long life, the implication being that if you do not honor your parents, the corresponding punishment is early death. If there are kids within the sound of my voice, please don't imagine that your occasional disobedience or disrespect of your parents is cause for God or anyone else to hurt you. That is not the God we know who invites us into a way of living that is meant for our good, not our harm. Parents, help your kids out on this one. I think I understand better now that the honoring of previous generations is meant to work against the tendency in every age for a new generation of adults to imagine That what we have, what we know, what we value in this life, are things we got for ourselves. And here is another confession. It is especially a tendency among progressives, we who believe that new understandings are always better so that we discount the learnings of the most recently previous era as out of touch, out of time, even impediments to the flourishing of the human family. But again and again in the stories our ancestors told, God warns God's people against a kind of generational amnesia, setting up rituals of remembrance to connect the present to the past. Honor your parents so that your days may be long. In the next chapter of your life together, God commands from the mountain, wanting the recently liberated children of Israel to remember where they came from so they'll be prepared for where they're going. It gives rise to thought, does it not, that in God's earliest interactions with these formerly enslaved people, God ensures that their enslavement will never be forgotten, that their identity will forever be marked by the injustice they suffered, and that they will have occasion to tell and retell the stories of their oppressed ancestors, not for the sake of wallowing in a sad past, but as formational for what kind of society they are meant to build now and next. Yes, I'm basically saying that critical race theory is baked into the Ten Commandments, that there is no biblical basis for denying or ignoring a painful past that is still affecting our present, especially if we hope for a better future together. Honor all our parents. Pay attention to our history. Remember where we came from so that our collective future will be lit with the bright light of hard truth. Here is where I will confess a bias in my reading of Scripture. I read the Bible these days through an expansive and broadening lens of community. That is to say, I'm always asking of the text, asking of our ancestors in faith, how does this story, this commandment, this parable, this poem, this genealogy, work to draw people together? How does it promote reconciliation and unity? How does it work against the single most frightening and destructive reality of our time, which is... The isolation and loneliness of each human person, the aggressive fragmentation of the human family. How does this text draw me near to my beloveds, my neighbors, my enemies? How does what I'm reading in the Bible serve to repair what is most broken about us now? Read through that lens, even the commandment to honor one's parents, which in one sense is very personal to each of us as we work out what that's going to look like for our particular parental units, becomes part of bending the arc of the moral universe toward justice, toward God getting everything God wants. The commandment thus read asks us to see ourselves as part of a larger whole standing in the stream of human history and some of us becoming parents ourselves, all of us becoming elders eventually and passing on to the next generation and the next what we have inherited, the stories we have heard, all that we have learned along with what we have worked toward and hoped for and leaned into. I have not forgotten about Jesus and the VRPs. I hope you haven't. His criticism of them is what got me onto the honoring and dishonoring of parents, of course. Jesus observes about his very religious kin that they have misunderstood in a fundamental way what it means to attend to God's commandments. And he uses the specific example of honoring and dishonoring parents to illustrate his larger concern. Please endure a bit of historical exposition. One of the primary benefits of having children in Jesus' culture, as in many cultures around the world today, is that if you were lucky enough to live a long life, your kids had to take care of you in your old age. In accordance with the Cis-Het patriarchy, sons brought their wives into the intergenerational family home it was not always easy and it could be expensive keeping people fed who frankly no longer contributed very much to the household evidently some sought relief from the obligation of that commandment and the vrps like good tax accountants who know how to shield money from the irs found a way to grant it. In a show of religious devotion, a head of household could designate his land and livestock, his possessions and pay as consecrated, holy, not for regular use in everyday life, And once the total of his usable assets dipped below a certain minimum, he'd no longer be constrained by the commandment to honor his parents, at least materially. Those assets could presumably be reclaimed from their consecrated status upon the parents' passing, and voila. The trickster could live out the rest of his days in comfort. Which makes me wonder... Would such a person do such a thing because they were afraid their own children would not honor them in their old age? Isn't it thus a self-fulfilling prophecy insofar as our kids learn how to be in this world by how they've seen us be? It's worth saying here that apart from this story in Mark 7, historians cannot find any evidence for this practice in the Judaism of Jesus' day. And Jewish writings from a little later specifically prohibit the hiding of assets to avoid financial obligations to loved ones. It was unlikely that the specific practice Jesus described was widespread, so we want to be careful that this story does not fuel our own latent anti-Semitism. If anything, we're here witnessing an intra-religious conflict of interpretation of a broad, basic commandment that has required interpretation through the ages, including our own wonderings tonight about what it actually looks like to honor our parents here and now. But if we can lift out of the specifics about aging ancestors and financial assets, if we can let Jesus give a narrow and concrete example of religious practice gone badly wrong, we'll hear how it rings true. Perhaps not in the specifics, but in a much bigger and, frankly, more troubling way. Because what Jesus is saying here is that you can go a couple ways with your religious devotion. And one of those ways fundamentally misses the point. You can go the way of personal, private pietism, imagining that your individual connection with God is paramount in the project of faith, you can build up a set of practices that serve to assure you that you are well within the boundaries, a kind of rubric of faithfulness that helps you keep accurate score. In that case, you you do the things. You say the words, you wash the hands, you attend the services, you keep it clean. And because it's all very clear in this way of imagining how it works, it becomes the way that you evaluate other people's faithfulness, too. Are they doing the things, saying the words, washing the hands, attending the services, keeping it clean? Because you can tell, right? And then before you know it, you've got teams, us versus them, the ones who do and the ones who don't, the ones who enjoy a personal, private, pietistic connection to God and the ones who apparently do not. Jesus knows about us that that's one of the ways we like to do things. I mean, we like to figure out what's expected and study the rubric, understand the minimum requirements, and then go for it and correspondingly join the team of like-minded individuals who are doing it the same way we are. Anyone who's not is out, and that feels weirdly good. Everybody loves a boundary, as long as they're safely inside it. Or, Jesus says, you can rethink the whole project. You can reread those commandments and re-examine your faithfulness and start to see what he's trying so hard to show us That if your adherence to religion is separating you from each other, making you do that math of who's good and who's not, who's in and who's out, all the damn time, well, that's just not okay. That is not what God wants. You are not as near to God's heart as you thought. The proposition that you could declare your assets korban and thus protect them from your parents' old age, it's a perfect example. Korban is a Hebrew term that means together or draw near or come close. In Leviticus, Korban refers to the offering of sacrifices on the altar of the Lord, gifts from one's own collection of precious assets that were meant to draw people near to God but also bring people close to each other as the korban, once it was charred on the altar, would then be shared as a celebratory meal for all in attendance. Korban was offered as communal reconciliation, people to God and people to people, the drawing near of hearts that had drifted apart under the pressures of everyday life. What's holy, the korban says, is togetherness. What's profane, the korban says is the separation. So the fragmentation of actual family under the label Korban would be a serious affront to both religious law and intent. Jesus, just like Isaiah and the rest of the prophets before him, is disinterested in that kind of religion, as we should be. Because what the world needs now is religious faith, let's say because of who we are, Christian faith that supports the communal flourishing of the human family in defiance of the forces that tear us apart from each other. What the world needs now is Christian communities that worry less about the personal piety of each and more about the collective health of all. What the world needs now is for us to help each other and to consider what's good for all of us and to pay close attention to the ones who have been left outside after all our centuries of wall building. What the world needs now is an end to religious justification for exclusion and condemnation. What the world needs now is us, church. Insofar as we are able to shed the weight of the Western, white, individualistic, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps lie, dressed up, as Christianity, insofar as we are ourselves able to remain hungry for the inclusion and dignity and celebration of every child of God, every sibling of Jesus, every lovely and beloved human shining with the Spirit. Does that mean that what the world needs now is for me to honor my parents? Maybe for me, yes. The specifics are always harder than the abstraction, are they not? When we sing this next song, just try something. Just see how specific it can be for you in your own imagining. That is what the world needs
0: now. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Rev. Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.